Some fucking day, huh? Hello, friends. You are listening to and or watching Pada Bing Redux, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos and all things that flow from it all over again. I'm Vic Singh with as random and sporadic a release schedule as it gets. I'm about as bad as Kawhi when he's on load management. One rung shy of AD. In my defense, you know I bring it when I suit up. So hopefully I fill out the stat sheet for you today. I'm mostly to blame. I'm never happy with the finished product. So I stall on starting the next one, which is exactly what you're not supposed to do. Or so I've read. You believe everything you read? But the universe is also partially to blame. Probably because this whole universe is against me. I got busy, backlogged, and had to leave my tiny corner of the internet behind for a little bit. Corner! Shout out to the bear, by the way, for running the table this award season. But like you, I never stopped watching the show. Never stopped thinking about the show, especially in my own approach to writing stuff. It's always on a constant loop in my head. So let's pick up where we left off a couple months ago, episode seven of season one, the Tony reconciling AJ's regressive behavior episode. It makes me sad, this uh, regression. AJ and his buddies jack the sacramental wine from their school chapel. Though AJ informs us that it's not quite sacramental yet. Not until it's blessed. Which is accurate. The belief is that by blessing otherwise regular wine, it is imbued with a kind of spiritual enchantment on the level with the Holy Spirit. All that. What's confusing you this week? Oh, it's the same old one God, three God thing. Frankie, most people figure out by kindergarten it's about faith. The conversion to the blood of Christ is called transubstantiation. So now, what do we call it when the communion wafer becomes the body of Christ? Oh, 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 hey. You know, Quasimodo predicted all this. Who did what? Interestingly, crimes involving sacramental wine have persisted since AJ's incident in The Sopranos. Last year, some dude in Berkeley got drunk off it and dressed himself in choir robes. Back in 2018, a former priest admitted to pissing in communion wine. What sick fuck would do something like that on purpose, huh? Well, turns out this sick fuck, who self-described as a sick puppy, was also into child porn and Satanism. What are you? Oh, I have so many names. In 2001, some Quebecois got in trouble for importing sacramental wine from California. Better quality grape, but apparently it's against the law. Quebecois can only drink Quebecois wine. Gotta say, few words are more satisfying to say over and over again than Quebecois. Stateside, for those curious, there are only a few select producers of sacramental wine that meet the necessary canonical standards. 
There's one such producer up in the Finger Lakes region of New York in Knessis, Oneida Vineyards. Their wine was used by Pope Francis when he celebrated Mass in New York in 2015. And on the other side of the country, in Fresno, California, a forgettable place I found myself in more than a few times growing up, there's Cribari Vineyards, whose wine was used in a Mass once by Pope John Paul II. Fast forward to later, when they do P.E. drills drunk. The P.E. teacher, Mr. Meskimen, smells it on their breath. One of the kids pukes, and that's all she wrote. This always reminds me of Eastbound and Down for some reason. What's up? I'm Kenny Powers. I'll be your new P.E. teacher until Coach Booth's back is fixed. There's also a similar scene in the film Doubt. That film was also concerned in part with the illicit drinking of sacramental wine. Also, gotta love cinema's portrayal of hoopers, no matter how awful it plays on camera, until quite recently. I mean, remember gems like these? Jack Nicholson with his up and under in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? John Travolta doing his best contrapposto wilt pose in Greece? The Bill Cartwright School of Free Throws with the little Tom Hanks character in Big. There's George Clooney's Eurostep in Out of Sight. One way to get farther away from J-Lo's character in the film rather than one step closer. But credit where credit is due. Shout out to Bradley Cooper's form in Limitless. It's almost sculptural. Next, Tony checks in on Christopher's management of collecting off a union job, offering some necessary muscle to shut the job down until they pay up. Tony comes in all water-like, like Bruce Lee in Fist of Fury. Now, there are historically many ways OC can assert their will over union workers such as this guy. There's, of course, extortion and intimidation, not just to the individual members, but to their families as well. Think Ozark. There's corruption and bribery of union officials, guys in charge of this dude that's giving the business to Christopher. Just get him the hell out of here. Is there a problem? Look, you made your point, okay? Paying guys to look the other way, that kind of stuff. I didn't see nothing. No? No. There's... Infiltration of leadership, putting dudes like Chris or Patsy or Vito, you know, fucking earners in key leadership positions within the union or redundant upper management that bleeds off half the kick, as the case may be. So they can control things more precisely from an ivory tower-like environment. There's control over hiring and job assignments, you know, like specific contractors getting preferential treatment, right of first refusal. There's embezzlement and financial control, a certain hegemony over the flows of money. That's usually more suited for a five-family type of outfit, not necessarily our pygmy thing over in North Jersey. Uh, there goes that dream. A more likely option, especially for someone like Tony, would be collusion with contractors. 
bid rigging, where contractors agree in advance not to bid against each other or to submit artificially high bids. Price fixing as a way to eliminate competition. And subcontractor kickbacks, whereby smaller fish pay to play with bigger fish, whether or not they're qualified for the gig. There was a big case on this last year in New York. A subcontractor told developers he bid high on a job, which essentially created a cascade of back and forth, whereby the developer explained to clients he grinded the sub down to a pre-agreed amount. The developer and sub would then split that difference in savings. In some little business model. Next, there's money laundering, using construction companies to wash money and legitimize their operations. Walter White's scientific speciality, to quote that little mad scientist in the never-ending story. Or should it really be attributed to Saul, that Kafka-esque episode when he explains the rules of engagement to Jesse, one of the show's best. And finally, if you really want to go outside the Don Corleone playbook, there's drugs using job sites as an arena to conduct makeshift drug marketplaces. Dealers selling with impunity, addicts shooting up on the street. Moving along, the wipe cut to Tony, putting out another fire. That's Tony in a nutshell, the whole show, right? This time it's, of course, AJ's transgressions at school. Tony getting put in his place after offering to pay for the wine to, you know, partially recompense for the affront on the sacristy. Gandolfini's expression, the way he sublimates into his chair. Guy sold it every time. The scene's not unlike Phoebe Waller-Bridge at certain moments in Fleabag or Saul Rubinek in Blackberry. In so many things I've watched since The Sopranos, I can't help but see a common inspiration drawn here or there from Tony's character. The school psychologist, Dr. Galani, is breaking the news to Tony and Carmela that their child might have ADD. Um, hi. It's no accident his name sounds a little like Dr. Kalanick. Although, all told, he was written as a true professional, however douchey. That's the whole design of it. He used neutral language. He framed the meeting more or less as a discussion. He highlighted strengths. And he offered next steps. Textbook shit, Dr. G. What makes the scene sing, though, jump off the page and sizzle on the screen, is the choice to have every space between each utterance filled with a cut to Tony's reaction, his processing, his admission in many ways. They're just reaction shots. He says nothing, but at the same time sets up the entire plot and structure for the whole episode. My shit has transferred to my kid, or if we want to dust off our English lit bona fides, it's Merchant of Venice. The sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. 
It's also a perfect setup to suggest he's going to be in the therapist chair a lot this episode. If you run the numbers, this episode certainly clocks a lot of time, directly or indirectly, in Melfi's office. I went ahead and did the math so you don't have to. And the episode devotes 19 minutes and 31 seconds to time spent in Melfi's chair, factoring in, of course, the flashbacks to the 60s when he's describing things to her. That's about 40% of the episode. Yeah, you must have been at the top of your fucking class. Depending on who you are, you either love that or you hate it. Me, personally? Oliver Twist all day, baby. May I please have some more? Later, at the family dinner table, Livia isn't feeling the suspension too much. With all the money you give them, every scene always needs an opposite. And they're never in short supply on The Sopranos, as evidenced by Junior here, too, who goes all Gloria Estefan on Tony. Hey, whatever happened to... Livia, however, also takes this as an occasion to dunk on Tony. Like father, like son, in so many words. Name one kid who's ever had that hurled at them and actually liked it. And if it actually lands, think about the irony embedded in it. Something bad generally always follows. A contradiction, an incitement, a proof positive, a resentment. Every time it's dropped in film, this is almost certainly the rule, not the exception. In season two, when Pussy says it to Tony, or Rush Hour 2, when Jackie Chan's adversary baits him with it, or The White Lotus, when F. Murray Abraham unloads it, or Dead Poets Society, a movie almost entirely about kids trying to step out of their father's shadows or expectations. Or in The Wire, when Bodhi's son gets it served up by his own mother. Like father, like son. No doubt. And always the ever-present juxtapositions in the show. Uncle Junior, like schoolboy Q in Hell of a Night, was about that life for Tony. Saw no problems whatsoever. And then the crosstalk, that careful coordination of direction, editing, sound design, and performance. Carmela and AJ, about AJ's snide remark to his dad, essentially calling him a hypocrite. What did you just say? Livia trying to calm down Junior after he got yelled at like a miserable. Tony presiding over the whole thing. Crosstalk is super hard to execute, but when it's done well, it just fucking sings. What looks like just a simple scene at a dinner table here is actually methodical stagecraft. Let's look at the blocking, for starters. Every character is strategically positioned in the physical space to visually separate their conversations. The dinner table is an ideal stage to execute this. Everybody needs their fucking elbow room, especially at an Italian dinner. The next consideration is the sound design. Sure, specific audio levels are adjusted to emphasize specific conversations at different times. 
But the ambient sounds that are part and parcel of eating at a dinner table, forks, knives, chewing, create a sense of space and location for each conversation. The next element that goes into the art of this is the editing. The choice cuts and the timing of those cuts are everything. Oh, that'll be nice. It's chaos, but coherent. Think about that. Chaos, but coherent. Yeah, that's a little of me admiring my own riff, liking my own IG post. But am I wrong? The pacing creates this. Simultaneous tension and rhythm between opposing conversations. Classic crosstalk is all over one, especially the opening wedding scene. The multiple conversations and interactions all happening simultaneously, giving us all the dynamics wrapped up like a perfect Japanese amaris omelet. Woody Allen employs it all over Annie Hall. Aaron Sorkin took the form and made it all his own in the West Wing. We remember that show precisely because of the flawlessly executed crosstalk. That and Bartlett's speech to God after Mrs. Landingham died. Yes, I lied. It was a sin. I've committed many sins. Have I displeased you, you feckless thug? I recently had a conversation with a longtime writer friend of mine, Scott. We've been so tired lately by watching forgettable things. Case in point, here I am talking about a Jed Bartlett speech from 20 plus fucking years ago. Where's the stuff like that today that we're going to talk about or remember in five, ten years? Our idea was to watch two new things on any given night and see which one we fixated on more the next day. A little game, if you will, of siphoning through what's out there today. And when putting them up against each other, which one, if any, makes us think about, want to talk about the story, the characters, or the concepts or ideas in the film or show? Thankfully, one that's risen above the rest and unexpectedly, which is the Best way, in my opinion. That's how the Sopranos took hold of me. Unexpectedly. It was The Holdovers by Alexander Payne. You can do this. Yeah, I was going to tell you the same thing. I've thought about that movie a little every day ever since I saw it. What a gift. And speaking of gifts, back over at the Soprano dinner table and saying the thing that blows your kid out. For us, it's not so much right in the middle of the meal lately as it is before or just as it's about to start. If things are trending south at our house lately, it's usually at the plating stage. The next idea this episode presents. Parents questioning other people's opinions or rulings on their kid. The guilt disguised as denial. 
that almost retching discomfort associated with accepting responsibility for your actions or consequences of those actions. The shot of Tony in the foreground, Carmela behind him. The dimensionality of it. The space between them and the frame is a common dynamic throughout the show. And many times it says more than any words on the page. Unsurprisingly, Chase knows those times best. And there aren't any words on the page. Or if they are, they're engulfed by beats. Here, Tony wondering about whether or not AJ knows. Carmela, with the, yes, he absolutely fucking does, but I'm not going to come right out and say it, way about her. The reckoning of how much we tell our kids versus how much we don't. How they find out what they find out, when they find out. And how we either pick up the pieces or, if transparent, rejoice in the brutal honesty we shared with them along the way. In Tony's case, getting incomplete closure on the matter, despite Carmela's best efforts, he ends up in Melfi's office, the first of many minutes this episode. Tony's question about whether ADD is real versus just another way for care providers to have their hand on the till, that construct of a crook questioning ostensibly established enterprises and professions is at the heart and soul of why this thing is so irresistible, no matter how many times you watch it. The irony of his otherwise truthful or objectively reasonable critique always pushing up against the impeachableness of his character. Melfi pivots into Tony's professed feelings for her the way Steph Curry changes direction on hardwood courts. And then his tack of making her feel jealous and then later diminishing her professional skill. The psychological offloading. He altered her shot like one of Wembenyama's arms. Then, back at home, the comparisons continue. Father and son both in bed at 9.17 a.m. Note the TV perched on a Corinthian column as Tony walks by it. If ever there was a symbol of the ushering in of the prestige TV era. If I'm remembering right, there's even a TV podcast that uses this visual on their cover art. Tony heads straight for the Prozac, which serves as a subway ticket to memory lane. Namely, the scene where young Tony witnesses his dad and Uncle June touch up a guy who was late on a payment, all because T lacked the varsity speed required to catch the bus. That scene, by the way, very similar to Tony in the pilot with Mahaffey, like father, like son. Back in the chair, Tony tells Melfi, Jefferson Airplane made him think of his father. What's amazing about that line is the notion that Jefferson Airplane lends itself to any kind of global thinking. I'm trying to free myself up to do a little global thinking. He comes clean with her about his past dealings. To quote the band's lyrics, he feeds her head with the numbers part of their business anyway, always with the selective disclosure. He might be in waste management part-time, but most of the time he's in 
perception management. It's very perceptive. Tony takes umbrage with the notion that his businesses are anything but legitimate. More of that guilt disguised as denial. Through some excavation and prodding, she gets Tony to fess up and realize that because he never asked his own dad about his business or affairs, now that it's come full circle with AJ, he's ill-equipped to manage it. There's no precedent. Suffolk Knights. Back over at the Bing, Tony elicits input from the guys. Guys who've been down this road before. But each kid's different. Every situation's different. It's hard to raise kids in an information age. Speaking as someone who hasn't availed himself of the information age, Christopher comes in with a haul of watches he ripped off an open FedEx truck. To everyone else, it's Christmas come early. To Tony, it's interstate commerce and another glimpse into his father-son type relationships and how fragile they are. Like the Sting song. The concept of Tony checking in across both families, spreading his problems across them like butter over two pieces of toast. Another brilliant mechanism that makes the show feel so real, so lived in at all times. It's three-dimensional. We get to experience him inside his own head. We get to experience what he chooses to express and withhold in therapy. And we get to see how he projects what's in his head and work things out from his therapy on either his family or his familia. From a lot on Tony's mind to a lot on AJ's, getting forensically analyzed by Dr. G. After, of course, likening the image of a horse with a barn in the background to South Park's inaugural episode. Dude, there must be something in your past you're not dealing with. Don't care. After going through all that crap and seeing what happened to Maggie, I don't want any part of therapy. Open question. Have early childhood diagnoses led to more positive future outcomes? Or is it mostly stigmatizing? I get that understanding leads to access, leads to self-awareness, and that's empowering and whatnot. But I've always wondered if the stigma drops, if the discriminatory hue lifts, or if it all invariably leads to overpathologization. Who did what? Labels. Back at home, Carmela bought up a bunch of books on the subject and is skimming through them like an AI LLM. Tony's triggered and not because he wasn't early on the NVIDIA stock. He thinks she blames him because, well, he blames himself. He'll just never say it, not to her. But she says she blames herself and to a degree her uncle Lenny, that Ubats. Over at Greengrove, great cut after dropping that word, Livia's reading through the obituaries when AJ comes to visit. He says he's too tired to play Scrabble because he's been with a psychiatrist all morning. That word, of course, stops Livia in her tracks. That's nothing but a, a racket for the Jews. Her inquiry reveals that Tony, too, sees one. The necessary pile-on in writing any script. 
Not only is AJ acting out in school and at the dinner table, but now he's also blowing Tony's cover. Everything in threes. Later, Tony and AJ pull over to repair a flat. Symbolism, right? Things break, we fix them. The show neatly inserts a father-son reckoning right inside this otherwise everyday occurrence. Mostly, though, Tony's happy he wasn't on that web thing AJ saw. Just imagine what the content on him would look like today. Cameras everywhere. Blog boys. Tony'd never leave the house. But that encounter with AJ was a close call. Too close, he tells Melfi. What about the other guys? Other kids is the focus of his inquiry this session. People, in his mind, much worse than him. References made to Leopold and Loeb, two students, of course, who kidnapped and murdered a 14-year-old boy just to see if they could get away with it. In part, because they were rich enough to afford Clarence Darrow for their defense, who turned out was worth every penny as he got him off death row. One of them even got out on parole and evidently lasted a lot longer on the outside than Feech did. Tony reflects for a beat on how life might have been different if his dad wasn't who his dad was. This notion of our dads and becoming what they are or what they're not. And maybe even how however much we're distinctively not them, we manifest variations of them without fail. The writing gets us inside our own heads, never giving us answers, but always posing questions. Melfi says it's important to remember he who doesn't understand history is doomed to repeat it. So, Tony takes her back. First memory, fittingly, Tony playing catch with Uncle June. Little payoff for those of us hanging on every word. Then the trip Janice got to take with their dad, Sans Tony. Janice and her junkets, right? How Tony had to stay back with his mom and how he almost got a fork in his eye for asking to have an electric organ. I could stick this fork in your eye. No doubt, inspired by the music he was growing up around. The Doors, Pink Floyd, Procol Harum, or the Zombies. Imagine how different things might have been had she gotten it for him. How different even the prequel might have been. Then the visual of Tony sneaking into his dad's trunk to see what he and Janice were up to over them's mystic eyes, the Belfast musical vehicle that broke Van Morrison. This recall is how he learns who his dad is and what he does. Later, watching him getting cuffed and carried away, then, while watching the Rascals on the Ed Sullivan Show at night, witnessing his dad come home after getting booked, like it was nothing, a minor inconvenience. We learn Johnny was taken in for violating his parole, that he was in jail when Tony was a little kid, what they called going to Montana and being a cowboy. Where are we going? 
Montana, honey. The way Melfi pieces it all together, everything, without saying anything, just letting Tony talk away the walls he's built up around himself all these years. Later, young Tony overhears his parents arguing about Reno, Nevada. Johnny wants to go, but Livia says hitching up with Rocco is a bad idea on account he's a bum. Point of note here that usually in art and in life, the better half, most often a woman, gives sound and sage advice. Think Abigail Adams or Adrian Balboa. Here, though, a distinction is made. Livia is not those women. Not even close. The show, at its apex best, are these intricate subversions. Fast forward to the present. Junior comes over to visit Livia. She tells him about Tony until, speak of the devil, Tony rolls up. After Junior bounces, Tony confronts her about Rocco Alatore, the guy Johnny wanted to go to Reno with. A payoff we didn't have to wait too long for. The mixture of long and short setups and payoffs keeps us off balance, keeps us paying attention. She updates us. They're millionaires now. Then the you-would-have-been-the-real-gangster moment. What this whole hour seemingly was leading up to. You know, everybody thought Dad was the ruthless one, but I gotta hand it to you. If you'd been born after those feminists, you would have been the real gangster. That one line alone makes the whole episode. Congeals it together like an annual list-topping chorizo burrito. Rounding third base on our way home, the results of AJ's psychiatric analysis and how to frame receiving or anticipating receiving bad news from across the table. So much imagery to draw inspiration from, from the Royal Tenenbaums to Mayor of Easttown to the Descendants, the social network. Tony's hang-up on the word fidget. What constitutes a fidget? A perhaps larger issue, though, Carmela stands by Tony on this one, doesn't take Galani's side. In a subtly symmetrical way, Carmela separates herself from Livia, differentiates herself, more akin to Abigail Adams or Adrian. Being a united front with her husband, seeing wisdom in their collective decision, that's the charm of the show's nuance revealed. Speaking of, we rap on Tony enjoying ice cream after a nice workout on the Nautilus, about as Instagram versus real life as it gets. And putting this scene in the context of an episode that was about 40% therapy, a nice reminder that sometimes the very best therapy is a bowl of ice cream alongside someone you love. That's all I got. Thanks for spending your valuable time with me. See you next time. That's why.